Hello, and welcome to Intuitive Eating, Health, Weight, and Body Image for Kids. I'm Dr. Jillian Murphy, MD, and I'm super excited to be sharing this special five-part podcast series, outlining a simple plan for raising competent eaters. This model is accessible to all and the perfect framework for working through feeding issues and weight worries. It respects children's differing body types, growth patterns, and appetites. It validates and respects differing levels of access to food, nutrient knowledge, and comfort with cooking. It provides a way for you to help your child develop a joyful relationship with food without harming. Please know that this is just a toe dip into the information. There's so much more that we could talk about and a million different ways that problems with feeding in families can manifest. If you need more support, email me, hello at foodfreedombodylove.com and book a session. As always, the information within the podcast is for educational purposes only. I'm not your naturopath yet. (laughs) And so you need to seek appropriate counsel and check in with yourself about what is right for you when it comes to feeding your children. All that said, let's get going. So again, welcome. This is part one of our five-part series. And in today's episode, I'm going to introduce you to Ellen Satter's eating and feeding competence model. We are going to talk about the division of responsibility. We're going to talk about what disrupts a child's natural inborn ability to eat intuitively and the hierarchy of food needs. But first, I want to chat about why I'm doing this episode. My name is Jillian Murphy, and I am the creator of the Food Freedom Body Love Method. And for many years, I have been working with women who are struggling with eating, with body image, with weight, from a health at every size perspective. And along the way, I also started working with kids and families. A little bit of background, I am a naturopath, so I had a general practice for 11 years, and I taught nutrition in a really different way at that time. Um, Many years ago, I actually used to offer free talks on food introduction for babies, guidelines for raising healthy eaters, for feeding toddlers, etc. And I was always so excited to go and share my naturopathic take on nutrition and feeding. But unfortunately, time after time, I left those talks feeling terrible, feeling just deflated and kind of guilty. Um, And it was because You know, although most of the moms in the audience, it was almost always moms with babies and toddlers, um, I don't want to exclude dads, uh, but it was just mostly moms, were into the information. You know, they're there, sunshiny faces, soaking it up, um, ready to go out into the world and implement my views, quite literally, my naturopathic views on eating right. But then there were always a few faces that didn't look so happy. And there were moms who I could tell by their faces and also by their questions and commentary felt guilty about having potentially fed, you know, they were there with a new baby, but maybe they'd fed an older child or two or three older children differently. And they were feeling, feeling guilty about that. There are moms there who are confused about how the information I was presenting contradicted their cultural beliefs around food, right? Like I have a sister-in-law who's French from France, and they feed their infants very differently than the naturopathic recommendations I was offering. And that can feel really difficult to process for moms. Um, 
mums who just, I could tell were really angry because they said they were angry <laughs> and they felt judged by the naturopathic um, philosophies and morals around feeding babies. It was never my intention to hurt anyone in those sessions, but it seemed like it, it didn't matter how I tried to present the information, how I, you know, I tried to do it differently. Every time I left, I left knowing that someone in the audience felt crappy and it made me feel bad. And so I just stopped offering the talks and I just vowed <laughs> that I would like never again get involved in childhood nutrition. I felt like it was a losing battle. And I was like, Blech, none of my business. I'm staying out of this. I'll just work with adults. So I'm nervous to start to share about the work that I do with children and families. Although I think it's revolutionary, I think it is so important. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. Um, it, it, it completely parallels the work that I do with women. Um, just a slightly different framework to support kids, to support children, because they have limited experience with food and, you know, it allows them to grow and experiment at their correct maturity level. Um, it makes me feel nervous because I don't want to do that to moms. And so I hope that everyone listening understands that that's not what this is about. This is about providing a framework for feeding that is available to all. And despite the fact that I'm going to kind of give you like the gold standard, this is the research model, this is the way to implement it. Um, for the most part, if you're doing it fairly well, kind of good, you got it. You know what I mean? Like you don't need to be, don't turn this into another quest for parent, you know, parenting perfection. That's not what this is about. Um, the framework that I'm going to talk about definitely, we'll talk about this in the next episode, becomes more important when we're trying to repair a damaged relationship. Kind of like when I teach intuitive eating for women, you know, there's things that we need to, when we're repairing a relationship with food or reestablishing that connection with the inner self, there are things that we need to be really diligent about that we can be a little bit more relaxed about when the relationship is, you know, still fine, has always been fine, or when our if we have very young babies and we haven't even gotten there yet, you know? So just know that, that that's never my intention. And, and also that despite the fact that I feel nervous about this, I feel compelled to do the work. So even though I'm nervous, even though I know there are parents that might feel upset about some of the information I give, I'm doing it anyway for a number of reasons. The first thing is that the majority of women I work with those who are struggling to eat intuitively, who are struggling with their weight and the idea of accepting their bodies, those who want to eat healthy but can't to, can't seem to, most of them identify feeding issues and restrictive attitudes that started as children. It started as children or for many women, um, it started when they were in their like preteen, teen years. And often it's born out of, you know advice that parents are given when there is a belief that their child's body weight specifically is incorrect within our current model of health and wellness or when eating patterns are viewed as problematic whether they actually are or aren't and so parents are doing their best they're doing what they think is the right thing based on our current health and wellness model um, but instead what they just end up doing is interfering with their with their children's ability to intuitively eat the second reason I feel compelled to do the work is because I think that the current views we have about health and wellness are problematic just to begin with. 
um, overemphasis on specific dietary dogma that's not been proven to result in long-term health or healthy relationships with food encourages food attitudes focused on avoidance, limiting, restriction. It feels very negative. We tend to approach food within this model you know, more from a place of like all the things we don't eat as opposed to um, the joyful experience we want to have with food. And it's a focus that interferes with the natural ability we're all born with to manage our food and bodies with joy and ease. And the last thing is that, you know, building off this idea that our current views about health and wellness being problematic, I am, as, as a trained naturopath, I'm no longer interested in perpetuating a health ideal that excludes cultures, races, socioeconomic status, which is a major, one of the biggest determinants of health, and we ignore it all the time. We ignore the lived experience and challenges of the people in front of us in favor of lofty goals and ideals. And there's nothing wrong with having lofty goals and ideals as long as we recognize them for what they are. And we recognize the inherent privilege in being able to pursue lofty goals and ideals. And that's not what we do in this culture. What we do is we present idealized forms of eating, lofty goals and ideals. And these are ideas is another important thing to remember. These are not well-researched, validated models, but we present them as though they are, but they're ideas, you know, coming from people like naturopaths um, without inherently being clear that this is a privileged place to be working from. And instead, we label it as the right way to feed our children, the right way to feed ourselves. And it's, you know, imbued with a lot of moralization and unattainability for many people. I love health. I buy into a lot of lofty goals and ideals. It's my profession. But the current commentary and standards leave even the most privileged of parents and humans and guardians feeling in lack, like we just can't get it right or add up. And that's not right. We should be able to, wherever we are at with regards to access to food, um, nutrition information, schedules, you know, we should be able to find a way to feed our children well. Um, Yeah. And so that's what I love about Ellen Satter's model. It recognizes that eating, and this is in her words, eating is more than deciding what and how much to eat. Feeding is more than choosing and getting choosing food and just getting it into your child. Eating and feeding reflect people's histories, their relationships with themselves and with others. Feeding is about the connection between parent and child, about, you know, trusting or controlling, about providing or neglecting, about accepting or rejecting. Eating is about the connection with our bodies and with life itself. Eating can and should be joyful, full of zest and vitality, or it can be fearful, bound by control and avoidance. And the mission of this model is to improve people's lives through joyful and confident eating. And I would hope that that's what every single person tuning in is wanting to do for them and their families. My mission is to spread this feeding message far and wide. You do not need to have a PhD in nutrition. You don't need to be a chef with an Instagram account. You don't need to have an unlimited grocery budget, ample amounts of free time, a multitude of tricks for actively limiting quote unquote unhealthy food in order to raise a happy, healthy kid. You don't need to micromanage your kid. 
You don't need to engage in lengthy moralizing conversations about toxic, unreal, crappy junk foods. And in fact, a lot of these efforts are actually super detrimental to the process and shames people who aren't in a position to comply. So this, this is also for, for parents, you know, this podcast series is for parents who want to preserve our children's intuitive inborn ability to eat and raise kids who are competent at managing themselves around food, all of the food that is available and exists on our planet. We want to raise kids who are flexible and joyful eaters. It's for parents who want to advocate for people in all types of situations to be able to raise competent eaters. Parents who are struggling with feeding issues, if you happen to be stuck in a place where you're having trouble feeding your child, um, whether you're worrying that they're not eating enough or they're eating too much, it's for parents who are worried about their kids' health worried about their children's weight. You know, I work from a health at every size perspective. So you know that I have really specific views on weight, which is really just that I don't think it's a problem. But I know that for many parents, there's a lot of angst and worry when it comes to their children's weight. Um, I happen to have two daughters, one of which um, is a very thin daughter and one of which is a very solid, what some would probably call chubby daughter. And um, so I understand when those fears and worries pop up, even as someone who's very clear about not prioritizing weight as a determinant of health, I get it. I get that there are angst, there's angst and worry when our, our children are not in straight sized bodies. Um, and this, this series is for parents who want to foster a good body image, to know how to talk to their kids about weight and health, to talk to that child who might be in a family where their body type is different, or to all of your children, if all of your children's body types are different. And again, this isn't just about children who might um, land on the heavy side of things. It's also for children who might be on the really small side of things because parents get messaging about that as well. The podcast, I hope it won't, but it might push some buttons, you know, as with almost all challenges we face as parents or guardians, you know, the challenges that we have our children typically are a mirror of the challenges that we're having with ourselves. Wounds that are triggered by our children are hard to manage and they dig deep in us. And so I just want to reinforce that all of this information is not intended to be moralized in any way. We're not trying to prove anyone right or wrong. This model is designed to meet you where you are unequivocally and to support you in moving forward, regardless of what you eat, regardless of what your barriers are, regardless of what your triggers are, um, and to support your children in eating well. And so if it is bringing things up for you, if it does feel like it's challenging you, just sit with that for a little bit if you can. Sit with it, see what it's bringing up, See what fears or what worries are being triggered in you. Get super clear on it and then reach out and let me know as kindly and respectfully as you can. And I'll do my best to answer um, questions and meet you where you're at. Okay, so let's talk about division of responsibility. But first. The secret to feeding a healthy family is to love good food. Trust yourself and share that love and trust with your child. Eating is a complex brew of preference, habit, attitude, intuition, knowledge, and physical necessity. All must be considered in addressing eating. And critical to them all is enjoyment. Enjoyment of food and reward from eating are essential to having eating and feeding turn out well. 
when the joy goes out of eating, nutrition suffers. Ellen Satter. Okay, so first thing, I'm gonna outline the model for you. It's simple in theory, but there are tons of questions that tend to follow. Just know that I recognize that you will have questions and that there are many unique and individual challenges experienced by families when it comes to feeding, but we have to start somewhere, right? The model, for the most part, even with those unique and individual challenges, remains the same. Yeah, we may need to make adjustments for specific familial concerns, and the model for feeding shifts slightly with age, which I'll get to um, a teeny bit today, but probably actually most in our fifth episode on applying this theory. But the foundation is the same. After presenting the model, I'll chat briefly about two big struggles that pop up for families immediately. Um, And then in the next episode, I'm going to cover more of um, common questions, objections, and a few sticky places that parents get into with the model. So rest assured, we will get there. You know, I, 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 we will get there. I'm also dedicating an entire episode to wait, um, because that's a super big topic and tends to be one of the places where this feeding model gets derailed really quickly and really intensely. All right. So with that said, we're going to start with the basics. We're going to, to discuss what Ellen Satter calls the division of responsibility in feeding. This is the feeding model accessible to all applicable in pretty much any circumstance. It is the division of responsibility in feeding. Here's the division. Parents are responsible for the what, when, and where of feeding. I'll say it again. Parents are responsible for the what, when, and where of feeding. You are responsible for the what? Choosing and preparing food, um, offering up a wide array of whatever nutritious foods you are comfortable with and aware of and have access to, including play food in a relaxed and regular way. Um, The when and the where is you providing regular meals and snacks, making eating fun and enjoyable, considering your child's likes and dislikes and limited experience with food without becoming a short order cook. And I'll talk more about that in episode five as well. Um, this, This part of the responsibility is really about prioritizing family meals modeling table manners, um, and letting your child grow into the body that's right for him, her, or them. What your children are responsible for. Children are responsible for, get ready for it, the how much and whether of eating. Meaning, you are going to organize the meals and snacks and make sure they're regular. You're going to purchase the food and prepare it and get it on the table with a high priority of family meals as often as possible. And then once at the table, your children will decide if they want to eat and how much they want to eat. Simple and hard as heck, (laughs) all at the same time. Uh, It's a model with two basic themes, leadership and autonomy. So you as the parent provide the leadership when you provide the structure and the framework when you purchase the foods and 
put them on the table and you prepare them in a way that feels good to your family. And you teach children within this framework. You lead them within this framework. You also then, once you've provided the framework, you give your children autonomy by allowing them to experiment and play with what and how much they eat within the safety of the structure you provide. I will say that a key component of this model is family meals and snacks. This can be the first, sometimes biggest obstacle for families because obviously we are all struggling with finding enough time, right? Between work, plenty of parents have alternating work schedules, extracurricular activities, general busyness of life. Um, it can feel really hard and really challenging to make time for family meals and sit down snacks. And I'm happy, so happy to work with families on this individually because nothing will make more of a difference than prioritizing family meals. It is a priority over and above the quality, nutritional quality of food that's on the table above all. Um, Ellen Satter sort of jokes, but she's not really joking in her book that literally the most reprehensible of meals could be served within this framework and structure and you can raise a competent eater. And the fact of the matter is I know most of your meals aren't the most reprehensible of meals, right? They're generally decent, if not perfect, because they don't need to be perfect meals. And so we can work with this. Like I'm happy to work with families on this, but just understand how important the family meal truly is. To feed yourself and your family well, you have to make eating a priority. To be willing to make eating a priority, you have to take the guilt out and put the joy back in. In my clinical work as a registered dietitian and then later as a mental health professional specializing in eating disorders, I worked with hundreds of patients whose eating ranged from positive and functional to severely distorted and even disordered. In the process, I discovered that there are certain eating attitudes and behaviors that work. Those attitudes and behaviors allow people to eat in a rewarding, matter-of-fact, and responsible way, to enjoy their eating and make it a priority, but still let it keep its place as only one of life's great pleasures. As I worked with my clinical population and observed the eaters around me, a picture emerged. To do well with eating, you need to one, have positive attitudes about eating. Two, be able to learn to like and enjoy the food that is available to you. Three, be able to intuitively eat as much food as you need to give you energy and to allow your weight to be reasonably stable. And four, make meals a priority and be able to provide them for yourself and your family. Being a good eater is not being a good dieter. It is far more than restricting yourself in order to lose or maintain weight and far, far more than striving for health by trying to get yourself to eat only quote-unquote healthy food. People who do well with eating are positive, comfortable, and flexible with eating and make sure they get enough enjoyable, nourishing food to eat. Growing out of positive attitudes about their eating and about their weight, people who do well with eating are generally confident eaters. They trust their bodies to know how much to eat by tuning in to what goes on inside, how hungry and how full they are. People who do well with eating like their bodies, at least well enough, and are loyal enough to their own genetic endowment 
to resist buying into the cultural craziness about weight. Remember, as I said earlier, you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to have every single meal and snack at your dining room table or with both parents present, if that happens to be the structure of your family. But the more that you do eat together, adults and children, in a sitting down space, the better. Um, If you have to be on the road, if you're going to activities, try to find a place to sit and eat whenever you can. Remembering that family meals are the bottom line of this model. Over and over and over again, the research is clear. Meals are as important to nurturing as they are for nutrition. Children with regular family meals do better in all ways, nutritionally, academically, socially, um, emotionally, and they're less likely to engage in unsafe or early sexual practices or get involved with drug and alcohol abuse. It's a pretty persuasive argument for regular family meals. Um, and that is without any regard. Like that's not, that's, that's not even touching what you eat at those meals, right? All of that benefit is just coming from having family meals. Don't want it to feel like You can't have competent eaters if you have a busy schedule. Um, We can get into that more. And again, I'm happy to deal with that individually with people. But, you know, if you are going to put your energy somewhere when it comes to raising a competent eater, instead of obsessing over superfoods and greens and whatever, you know, this is the place to start. If you have zero time in your schedule for family meals, this is the place to start. Start where you're at build upon a small beginning of a couple of family meals a week or a couple of sit-down snacks with your kids. Um, The other big obstacle that I will say here in doing the work that I do is parents who are struggling to feed themselves and respect their own bodies. If you have been neglectful of feeding yourself, meaning you just ignore your needs and don't feed yourself, or if you have been overly obsessed with feeding yourself, locked into diet mentality and obsession over, you know, healthy foods versus toxic foods, clean foods, dirty foods, you know, chances are your inner attunement is off, is off. And you may even resist choosing foods and preparing foods and offering the wide variety of foods, including play food that children really need to be exposed to and have experience with in order to become competent eaters. Um, This is another place where I really do encourage parents, moms, dads, grandmas, whoever happens to be the predominant feeder, if you are struggling to feed yourself, then we need to start there. I will always and forever stress the fact that no one needs to be perfect in any way, shape, or form, but when you are tasked with the responsibility of choosing and preparing food for your child or your children, um, and then sitting down and eating with them and modeling competent eating, there are some foundational requirements that are really challenging for a lot of people in today's diet culture. People who believe that they need to be, you know, managing their own weight or stressed about the health of the food that they're eating. You know, our goal here is to provide, like I said earlier, a wide range of nutrient-dense foods to the best of your ability and comfort level and to balance the presentation of those foods, which I call work foods, with play food. 
you know, regularly exposing your children to play food. Imagine that as a recommendation. Children best manage themselves around the more processed, sugar-laden, less nutrient-dense foods in our world if they are given practice in eating them. And if those foods don't hold an extreme amount of power that taboo and restriction and deprivation and moralization, you know, give to food. So when you have fears about whether or not you can control yourselves around food, you tend to believe that your children will also struggle to control themselves around food and that those foods are going to be the things that make them unhealthy eaters. But the research, it just isn't there. In a study of five-year-old girls, some overweight and some at normal weight, the girls whose mothers used restrictive feeding patterns were shown to have the greatest level of overeating behavior by age nine, Birch, Fisher, and Davison, 2003. Parental restriction is only one side of the coin. The other side is parental pressure to eat more healthy foods. In yet another study of five-year-old girls, when they simply perceived parental pressure, and control about food, it resulted in them pulling away from their internal signals of hunger and fullness. Instead, began to restrict certain foods to eat emotionally and eat with abandon. Carper, Fisher, and Birch, 2000. And that that reading is from the Raising an Intuitive Eater chapter, chapter in the Intuitive Eating book by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Reich. I just wanted to mention after um, reading that that quote and that excerpt from the research, two things. Number one, I use the word overweight. And for anyone who has been following me for a while, you know that I don't really subscribe to the words overweight, obese. I feel like they medicalize bodies that are often normal. And, and um, I'll get into that more in the weight um, episode that I'm going to do. But I just want you to know that I realize I'm using those words that I don't really subscribe to, but they are in the research and um, it is a concern for many parents, and so I'm addressing it. But in the weight episode, I'll more, um, I'll round out this idea about what we do need to worry about and not worry about, and and how to manage our own worries when it comes to our children's bodies and weight, so that we can support them and help them grow into competent eaters without actually interfering and harming them. Um, And then the other thing I just wanted to say is that I love podcasting because it's a pretty loose way to provide information. It feels less formal than writing and it's a fun way people can listen to it when they're in transit and and exercising and moving and all that stuff. But I will say that, you know, I'm, I'm talking about research, I'm talking about statistics and the one thing about Ellen Satter's feeding model, this division of responsibility, is that it is a highly researched and validated model, which, and, and, and as is the intuitive eating model for, for eaters and children, um, which really contrasts a lot of the ideas that are thrown around by holistic nutritionists and naturopaths, and even a lot of doctors when it comes to feeding children. And so if you are interested, if you want more information um, about the actual sources or the research, feel free to contact me. I'm not going to speak in research speak the whole time, um, but it is there. It's a well-founded model um, with great, like I said, great validation. Okay. All that said, that's it. That's the model of feeding, a division of responsibility. You are responsible as a parent or a guardian 
or the, the main feeder of children for the what, when, and where, with an emphasis on having sit, children sit down, preferably with an adult eating together. You get to choose whatever feel, foods you feel are best for your family while offering a wide range of work and play food to the best of your ability. Um, your kids will choose whether or not to eat and how much. When you both stay in your lane, all will be well. It's truly that easy. Um, as I mentioned, the division of responsibilities shifts slightly with kids at different ages. Um, I can't go into all the details here. I'll probably go into it a little bit more in the final episode. But, you know, with babies, all we're really responsible for is the what. Like, are we going to breastfeed them or are we going to bottle feed them formula? Um, Babies really guide the way within this model. They make all of the other determinations. And then as our children shift onto solid foods, you know, by, you know, by sort of like the later in the first year, by, by one years old, you know, we really are using this model, this division of responsibility all the way into adolescence, although we ever so slightly, um, slowly start to shift the responsibility over more and more of the responsibility over to the kids. But the, but the foundation stays the same leadership and autonomy, the combination of the leadership of the what and the when and the where, and putting in the hard work of structuring regular family meals and snacks, and then providing our children with the freedom to figure stuff out for themselves within the safety of that framework that we provide for them. So what are the big issues that come up? Um, What are the big things that actually interfere with our children's ability to intuitively feed themselves? Because they're born with it, right? As I said, with babies, they're responsible for like all of it. (laughs) You know, we just decide if we're going to breastfeed them or feed them formula and they guide the way and they have this natural capability. And then as we shift onto solid foods, we need to be more careful of Um, preserving that natural ability and what gets in the way, I'll tell you what gets in the way, interference. Interference gets in the way and that could look like too much interference or it could look like too little interference. This excerpt is also from the Raising an Intuitive Eater chapter of the Intuitive Eating book. There are numerous studies that support the concept that dietary restriction can have serious consequences for children. These include the potential for increased weight gain, of course, beyond genetic, you know, blueprint and and what's appropriate for a child, Um, eating that is not connected to hunger, preoccupation with food, and eventually lower self-esteem, putting pressure on children to eat when they refuse food, misinterpreting normal weight as overweight, Restricting certain foods and soothing children with food all interfere with children's trust in their inner signals about eating. Ellen Satter believes that over-control and under-support are the basis of many childhood feeding and weight problems. Um, That's from Triboli and Reich. And again, we'll get into the weight stuff. Don't obsess about that. I feel like mostly our children grow the way they're supposed to grow. But interference... Too little interference, which could look like anything from, you know, just letting our children eat in front of the TV or distractions on a continual basis to flat out ignoring them and forcing them to figure out how to fend for themselves, you know, feeding themselves from the cupboard whenever and whatever they want without guidance. Um, You know, I don't see as much of the latter, like sort of just like 
neglect of children within the population that I work with in this space. Um, neglect does happen with eaters for sure. Um, but when it comes to parenting, definitely the former. So letting children eat with too much TV or distractions or on the road could, could be considered too little interference. And we can talk about that. But what I see more of, um, is too much interference. Um, too much interference and parents have always, of course, the best of intentions, but it could look like controlling portion size. So like forcing kids to finish their plates or stopping them from taking more when they reach for seconds, um, or even just comments like, do you really need more? Uh, that, that constitutes too much interference. Um, yeah. So, so with family meals as a foundation, there's no need to be perfect. That's for sure. Like we, as a family, I like, we totally relish sitting in front of the TV and watching a movie and eating dinner occasionally on the weekend or, you know, eating a meal in the car when we're rushing to something super fun and exciting on a really busy day. Um, with, with that type of stuff, it's more about just, is that the exception or is it the rule? And if it's the rule, then that would constitute too little interference that can result in kids that whose eating habits go off. Um, with too much inter interference, like I said, I see more of this, tends to be driven by worries that parents have about health, about the healthiness of food their children are choosing, um, about body type and size, and it can be even instigated by healthcare professionals that are pushing parents to interfere on this level. But the important thing to understand here is that when we follow the division of responsibility and we don't interfere, when we take care of the what, when, and where, and really let our children take care of the how much and if, um, we don't bump up against the interference issues, right? When, we, when the foundation is family meals and we follow the division of responsibility, we don't need to worry. We can just stick with organizing meals buying and getting the food on the table, which is really more than enough work. <laughs> and it often feels hard because guess what? It is hard. Um, but like I said earlier, if you're going to put your energy anywhere when it comes to, to feeding our children, this is where to put it. You know, keep our noses out of their job, which is learning and experimenting and making mistakes with food. And, and it's never really mistakes because again, the research supports that children balance themselves out naturally. But when we stay in our lane and let our kids do our jobs, we preserve their ability to eat intuitively and regulate themselves. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. And not only do we raise competent eaters, but we stay out of power struggles with our kids when it comes to food. And mealtime stays enjoyable instead of stressful. Um, so that's all I want to cover for today. And I know that there's probably lots of questions. Like I said, we're just dipping our toe in. So hopefully in the next couple of, um, episodes, I'll get to more of the questions and the concerns and the fears that parents have. I was also going to cover hierarchy of food needs within this episode, but I think we've covered enough for today. So I will cover that in the next episode when we talk about nutrition. That's it for our first episode. Thank you for being here. Thank you for diving in to feeding children with me. Um, so interested to hear about your feedback. If you're enjoying this, please share it with everyone you know. Leave a, leave a review on iTunes. Um, that really helps the podcast out. And if you need to talk with someone for yourself or your children, 
email me hello at foodfreedombodylove.com.